You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an NBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers. Hello, and thank you for joining us for segment two with Judge Inman of the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, Judge Inman, you've clerked for the Chief Justice. You had a real-world job before even going to law school. Uh, You've been a member in the private bar, and I think uh, that, amongst other things, uh, makes you rather unique, and I think at minimum it gives you a unique perspective on the law. As the finder of fact for certain issues, particularly motions, I have to think that knowing how messy things can be in life affects judging credibility of witnesses, for example. When we're doing a spirit court jury trial, we tell jurors to use their life experiences and common sense. Judges, like juries, are given a tremendous amount of discretion because you are, what I say, the boots on the ground. You have an opportunity to observe the demeanor of witnesses, how they answer questions, body language, nonverbals, and the like. Uh, How do you view your role of uh, sorting out what really happened? And I understand there's a difference between Superior Court and Court of Appeals. Um, And I probably don't understand fully the differences, but there's a difference real time versus looking something on the record on appeal. How do do you do it versus Superior Court? And is it different from the Court of Appeals? It is very, very different between the Superior Court and the Court of Appeals. and you're you're absolutely right. the The trial judge has a responsibility to pay attention to all of the evidence in a case, the demeanor of the witnesses, inconsistencies in the evidence, and when when there is an issue for the judge to decide and his or her discretion, mm-hmm. um, the you know starting point is. <laughs> Did you read the briefs? Did you listen to the witnesses? Are you considering everything you you need to consider? Um, And yes, I think real world experience um, comes into play because um, although I'm very fortunate not to have had real world experience in um, certainly some of the some of the terrible criminal cases Mm -hmm. that that I presided in you understand human nature, right? You you have, you have common sense. And um, for me, having practiced law for 18 years, having worked with clients and examined witnesses and experienced from that perspective, does this person sound credible or not? Um, I'm sure, um, you know, every lawyer has the experience with his or her own client and the client is telling the story and the lawyer is thinking, not necessarily, you're not telling the truth, but if I were a juror, I would not believe that. If I were a judge, I would not believe that. Um, and so and it's really the common sense tools that everybody has. Um, you know, when you think about it, the pressure in a trial, certainly in a criminal trial, is far more on the jurors than on the judge. Right. They make the hardest decision. But every decision about whether something's prejudicial, about whether or not um, evidence is relevant or it's um, 
probative value is outweighed by its potential for prejudice, those are all judgment calls. And I do think having having a broad experience helps. Right. And and so in Superior Court, if you've got a whether something's admissible as a piece of evidence or whether there was legal grounds to do something, you are a finder of fact in, in saying this is what I think took place. Um, I kind of learned that. I went to a CLE hosted by Judge um, Donna Stroud, which was, I commend anybody who has a chance to go to that CLE um, to go to it. And I was on a family law case. And um, um, I realized I had been doing my written orders wrong for <laughs> 27 years. Um, I'm, I literally um, went back to the office and said, you know, let's pull the five most common orders that we do. And we, um, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I mean, she had like the top 10, I don't know if you've been to the CLE. It was, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, she said like the top 10 list or the top eight list, whatever it was of things not to do. And I did every single one of them. Um, I was overly formal. I used that in front of every sentence. Uh, in the findings of fact, I said, um, that the witness testified X, Y, and Z and, and just things like that. And the judge is like, I, that's not a finding of fact, but it's what the court says happened or didn't happen. And so there is, as a finder of fact, as the court, you do decide what took place and didn't take place as a matter of law. Yeah. Now, related, but technically separate is, is this, you know, what the jury decides. The jury is the finder of fact in the sense of thumbs up, thumbs down. The court, though, decides, and I think more importantly, what the jury hears um, from the outset. So now you mentioned that you said it was tremendously different. I, I'm, I think that's what you said than the Court of Appeals, because on the Court of Appeals, we, you know, as defense lawyers, we call it that, you know, you're looking at the cold record. You're not. And clients, I don't know if uh, clients realize this, but um, you don't listen to the transcript of the proceedings. I have, I have clients that I think literally think they're every segment of the court trial is videotaped and you watch it like it's Matlock. Um, <laughs> and I think clients think, well, if the judges would have in the court of appeals would have done it differently, they're going to fix wrongs. That's not really your role. So uh, tell me a little bit how that works. And I, I shouldn't tell you what your role is, but that's my perception. So what, tell me what's No, no, um, no, that's a, that's a really, really good question. And it's so different. Um, and you know, that, and that, I realize even more on the court of appeals than I did when I was a trial judge, just how much power trial judges have that is not going to be subject to any review. You know, the trial judge's assessment of the demeanor of a witness, mm -hmm. um, all of the uh, implicit bias that that trial judge brings to, to work every day, um, you know, just as an example, I read somewhere that culturally in some, in some, um, in some Latin American communities, looking down when you're answering someone's question, like literally looking at the ground is a show of respect. Mm -hmm. But in American culture, um, I'm also aware of the, the generally held belief that not looking someone in the eye when you're answering a question signals that the person isn't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. So you, 
you really have to think carefully about not only what you're hearing concretely, but how you're interpreting and how you're assessing a witness's demeanor. Um, and, you know, we do tell jurors and when jurors hear the witnesses testify, then that is for the jurors to decide. Um, but for the, the court, if there is voir dire about an expert witness, if there are questions about um, whether evidence was hidden before trial, where you're not only assessing the credibility of witnesses, but of the lawyers, you just, it's a tremendous responsibility. At the Court of Appeals, even if we had video of the entire trial, um, and, and even though I, I certainly see between the lines of the cold record a lot of the times and see what's going on, there's often nothing I can do about it mm -hmm. because the standard of review for witness credibility is that we defer to the trial judge unless there is absolutely no way any reasonable finder of fact could have found that fact. Mm -hmm. And those decisions are also always reviewed in the light most favorable to the prevailing party, mm -hmm. the appellee, um, which is always the state, you know, almost always the state in criminal cases. So even if, even if we wish a case had turned out differently, or even if we wish the trial judge would not have created this problem on appeal by excluding evidence that probably wasn't going to matter anyway. Um, we don't get to second guess those decisions by the trial court. We we're, we we we're not allowed to, even if we think the trial court made a made a bad judgment call. It has to be an abuse of discretion. Right. So even if you personally may have ruled in a different way or thought that something should have been admitted or not admitted. But for an abuse of discretion, you're not going to overturn that decision. That's correct. Right. That's correct. And I, I always try to warn younger lawyers, before you just bounce something up to Raleigh um, and enter notice of appeal, consider what the legal issues are. Um, well, that's um, <laughs> really good advice because, you know, you've heard the phrase, um, hard facts make bad law. Mm -hmm. And um, someone can appeal an issue you know, in the interest of an individual client for one concern. And if it presents the court with a legal issue that could really change the fabric of our jurisprudence, mm -hmm. um, at least your colleagues in the bar are not going to be real happy with you for taking that, that case up. Right. Um, right. Right. Exactly. And, and, um, Factually, cases and 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 this is lawyers. People don't always realize this, but we have rules of conduct that we we live by, and and people proceed in good faith. I've literally had people on the other side of the aisle argue a case, telling me what the facts were on it that went up to court of appeals or Supreme Court, and didn't realize that I actually was a trial attorney. And it can be very difficult to discern 
from an opinion from the Court of Appeals down, but even in the Court of Appeals, what actually took place at trial, um, uh, what was considered important or not important. So, you know, someone say, well, this was a facts of this case and, you know, in, in a formulaic type of expression, A plus B plus C equals D. And I'm like, well, that's not really, one, what the Court of Appeals said, and two, that wasn't really what the facts were. And these are people proceeding in good faith. So, Right, and um, I'm sure as a, you know, if you've had cases go up on appeal, you've read appellate opinions, and I feel confident the the judges were acting in good faith, mm-hmm. or the lawyer who was in the trial thought, is this the same case? Because mm-hmm. I don't even recognize this version of what the case was about. Right. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's just different when you're sitting and you've been there. So it's different arguing a case in a courtroom in the well of the bar and knowing what's in your mind and knowing the facts that you know them. And then you read it on a transcript. And uh, especially if it says inaudible or, um, you know, things like that, where it, the inaudible thing is awful. <laughs> well, it happens. I mean, juvenile cases is a prime example where there's just someone that, you know, they forget the fl- in Charlotte, we used to flip a tape. I mean, it was a little, a, you know, a little cassette. Um, and then when you read yourself in the transcript, you're like, golly, I didn't realize that I was such a poor public speaker. <laughs> so, um, well, it's really, it's, you know, it's really, really, that's a, inaudible is a, a terrible thing to see in a transcript. Um, you know, the one protection I think you have at the appellate level is you have more than one judge reviewing the case. Mm-hmm. And if there's a dissent or a concurring opinion, um, it causes whoever's writing the majority to go back and make sure that they've done their best to keep the, the, the recitation of the record true to the record. Right. And if a judge is dissenting, well, usually, um, certainly for me, this is the practice. I don't want to dissent if I'm not really sure about what the record is and what the law is. Mm -hmm. And so those disagreements actually, I think, improve our jurisprudence because they, they, they should be putting each judge through the paces of making sure that his or her analysis is intellectually honest. Right. And, and for students of law and, and younger or less experienced lawyers, the appellate process, what, and if you just say, Your Honor, we respectfully enter notice of appeal and you do your written notice of appeal in Superior Court and you ask for a copy of the transcript of the proceedings to be reduced to writing, there's a process for doing that and there's a process for getting extensions for that. The record on appeal is where you try to narrow down the legal issues, you do a, a, a factual recitation as you believe it, and then there's an opportunity to try to correct um, the record, the transcript, that's what's being typed down when you're talking. But that in and of itself, um, heck, I've tried to case before and said, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking or what I said. Um, it happens. It's just, that's just the, especially you're doing a three week trial and boy, you don't, I don't, I don't care how good you are. It's impo- it's literally impossible. And so that goes up to Raleigh. Some things we can agree to, some things we can't agree to. If there's inaudible portions and the parties can't agree, you're kind of just stuck with what we got. It's a technology problem. I, I frankly, in North Carolina, really wish we'd have a little bit better technology on that because it it's so hard to remember. Well, um, I, yeah, I learned the, it could have been harder, but I learned a, 
important lesson about using contractions mm -hmm. when we speak in court. I was presiding in a first degree murder trial and it was really, really complicated. There were theories of acting in concert and theories of conspiracy and the felony murder rule. And in instructing jurors on the basic instruction that you cannot decide any issue by majority vote, mm -hmm. I said, I believe you can't decide any issue by majority vote. Well, it came out in the transcript as you can. Right. That was an issue for appeal. And only because I gave the jurors written copies of the instruction did that case not get overturned. Right. Right. Um, and, and you just don't know when you're in the moment how it's going to sound. But no, I never used contractions after that. That's a great idea in the markdown <laughs> all the different yeah. things. It's as a as a courtroom lawyer, you get caught up in the um, your argument and the thoughts and your when I'm making an argument to the court, I want to make sure I do it as quickly as possible, as concisely as possible. When I make an argument to the jury, um, you're looking at body language and facial expressions, and then our, some courtrooms aren't in North Carolina, and I've tried a lot of different districts, are just are not set up for good recording. I think, for the record, the best courtroom I've ever tried a case in, I don't know if you've ever been there, is in Greenville, North Carolina. It's on the coast, where the judge is on the bench, and the jury is directly across from Your Honor, and then the parties, the litigants, sit you know, on, on facing each other in opposite direction, and then the witness is right there in the middle, so you can hear everything. What people don't realize, like, um, well, heck, I tried a case in Newburn one time where we had to bring a folding chair in for uh, the alternate, and there was just not room to, um, it's a beautiful courthouse, but there wasn't the room, and I'm not coming to my friends in Newburn. I had a great experience, but some courtrooms are set up better than others to be heard. If you're in Cabarrus County, um, there's a sweet spot I think they've got a rounded ceiling where if you stand in one area of the courtroom and make the argument, the jury can hear it. But you got to be careful because sometimes they may hear things that you didn't intend them <laughs> to mm -hmm. hear. And I, I, I've had judges, in addition to court reporters, tell me, speak up um, and, and don't use the Latin maxims, which I tend to use. And then you said the contractions, if I say expresso unus ex exclusio arterius, I have to stop and go, okay. The expression of one thing to exclusion of others, and I will tell the court reporter. I'll spell that out later, and um, you know. So I, I've really tried to limit that myself. Um, let's talk. Let's talk. You could probably use more Latin at the appellate courts. I'll just say, but you know, well, that's about my limit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a Campbell lawyer, so there's certain things uh, uh, that we learn, allegata non probata, and things like that. So um, let's talk. There is opinion that came out, and as you feel comfortable, it's it's an opinion that's already come out, and I I don't I'm not aware if there's any other litigation on it. If there is, I will um, let you tell me. Um, but this comes from the question of how long it it may take to get an opinion out. Sometimes people don't understand. It's not like people are just uh, sitting on their hands. There's a, there, you're very selective in the cases that you give for oral arguments, and some cases have new precedential value that have not been addressed before. Uh, I think nothing falls more squarely than this, um, the Crossman case in North Carolina because it involves technology and um, the um, 
Sedona principles and things like that, as, as you feel comfortable, um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, and maybe not that case, but in general, the process that the, these cases go through? Because that, that case has uh, implications, in my humble opinion, of lasting for, literally for decades. It was a case of first impression, and I'll let you, you're the one that ruled on it, so, um, or wrote the opinion on it, excuse me. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that, that process, the mindset, and how those things work with um, you on the bench. Well, you know, um, whenever, whenever notice of appeal is taken, and, and um, Crossman concerned a dispute about discovery, boy, do trial judges generally not feel happy when they hear they've got a discovery motion on their calendar because it's a big he said, she said, and sometimes can seem like petty disputes over something the lawyers should be able to work out. Um, but Crossman had to do with documents that were in computer drives that a large institutional defendant claimed included attorney-client privileged documents. Mm -hmm. And in e-discovery and the Sedona principles, principles concern ways that you can use computer programming to identify responsive documents that would take much longer for, for people to go through the paper and look at. Um, but the, the institutional defendant said, wait a minute, a computer cannot make the final decision about whether something is privileged or not. Mm -hmm. You cannot turn these documents over to the other side. And normally the court of appeals does not hear appeals about discovery dispute before a trial is over. It's called an interlocutory appeal. But when it involves a substantial right and your right to protection of your attorney-client privilege is one of those rights, then we get involved and, and look at it. Um, that case, like many civil cases, one party, in this case it was the institutional defendant, because the trial judge had said, you need to go through this process and then the documents will go to, the, to um, this document examiner appeal, filed notice of appeal with the court of appeals. There's then prepare, preparing the record, which is what were all the exhibits that the trial court looked at? Where's a transcript of the hearing? And that gets prepared. And then you settle with the, your opponent about, do you agree that this is fair? Is there something else you think needs to be in the record? And usually the parties can agree on that. If not, the trial judge just settles the record and the record comes to the court of appeals. Then a briefing schedule is issued and the appellant has a deadline to file an opening brief. The appellee then has a deadline um, that is some period of time after the appellant's opening brief to file an uh, opposition brief. And then the appellant has an opportunity to file a reply brief. Um, that can take months usually to get through. And the judges don't see the record on appeal or the briefs until all the briefs are in. And the staff counsel at the Court of Appeals has looked through the record and the briefs to make sure everything is together. So by the time I, as a judge, would get the records and briefs in a case, it's already been pending for, for months. 
Um, what happens next is the judge and the judge's law clerks um, will read the briefs and the record. And I try to do this as soon as possible because we'll have calendars of either nine cases or 12 cases. And if I have a case like the Crossman case, and then I have three other cases, which are um, obviously important, every case mm -hmm. is important to the parties, but which are governed by black letter law, I can spot the issues and say, this is gonna, this is not gonna take so long to do, this is not gonna take so long to do, this is not gonna take so long to do, this looks complicated. I need to look at it. Um, a law clerk will, will be writing a memo, a research memo about these difficult issues. And the, the, uh, the cases may or may not be set for oral argument. If lawyers don't ask for oral argument, likely it's not going to be set for oral argument. If the staff counsel's office doesn't see it as an issue of first impression, probably not going to get set for oral argument. But the judges can, upon reviewing a case, say to themselves, hmm, this is, this is a difficult case. I don't think the difficult issue is answered in these briefs. I think we're going to need to do further research. Um, I'm really loathe to sandbag lawyers by deciding a case based on authority that nobody briefed. Mm -hmm. So um, let's, again, the, the court can do this. Let's issue an order and ask for supplemental briefing on an issue to give everybody a fair shot to be heard on it. Um, and then let's schedule oral argument after we have supplemental briefing. Um, this happens a lot in uh, constitutional cases as well. Um, or cases in which the Supreme Court has issued a landmark decision and the Court of Appeals is left to decipher how does that affect other cases. Mm -hmm. um, we may ask the parties, the council to submit supplemental briefs so that we don't have to send this case up to the, it's gonna go to the Supreme Court and we're kind of flying blind and deciding what to do. Um, before the um, either the oral argument or the date that a case is quote unquote heard without oral argument, in an ideal world, um, the judge who's assigned to that case and judges are assigned to write opinions by the senior judge presiding on the panel. Most judges just go one, two, three by seniority. They don't cherry pick, you know, mm -hmm. who's going to write an opinion. And the judge who is going to to be responsible for writing the opinion um, will have prepared. The other judges will have prepared and will have a, a tentative vote, a tentative, this is what I'm thinking. Um, it's not public. It's in fact quite confidential. And it is for the purposes of the judges having a conversation. Um, when judges really have exhausted all the time and effort they have, and they're still unsure, there's um, a phrase called as the law allows or ALA. And especially if a judge is feeling that uncertain about a case, that's a time to dig in more. Mm -hmm. um, now, another judge may say in conference, 
well, that's troubling you, but you've overlooked X, Y, and Z. And then the judge who was ALA says, oh, okay, in that case, you know, I can decide it. But um, each judge needs to think about the issues presented before the day for oral arguments, because those are also the day that the judges will first have a conference about that, that case. So by the time lawyers come to the court to present oral arguments, or by the time a case is to set to be heard and, and considered by a panel, a, a good deal of work has already gone into it. Um, I will say that, that that was certainly part of the learning curve going from a Superior Court judge to a Court of Appeals judge. Um, a Superior Court judge just gets to decide things. But the Court of Appeals, you actually have to collaborate. You right. actually have to, to work with others, and, the, and, that can take, and that can take some time. Um, I do find that the more, the more time you've heard like a, um, um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, mm-hmm. an ounce of preparation before oral argument for the judge or an ounce of preparation before the herd date is worth a pound of work after that herd date. Because if you're not prepared beforehand, you don't know what questions you may have if it's orally argued. You don't know what questions you may have and it's not set for oral argument. And now you've heard it and you, you could go back and ask for oral argument, but it's, it's, it's gonna take longer. Right, um, right. After the judges confer, um, the judge who was assigned to write the opinion, um, unless that judge is in the minority, drafts a proposed majority opinion that's circulated to the other two judges. Um, if the other two judges concur and you have a unanimous opinion, it's usually going to be filed by the court much sooner than a case in which the judges disagree. At the Court of Appeals, we give the highest priority to cases involving children. Those are juvenile cases, and these are cases of abuse, neglect, and dependency that have to do with um, you know, where a child is going to live. And we try to give those priority, and our internal goal is to issue those decisions within one month of when they are heard. Um, our internal goal for other decisions is to have them issued within 90 days or three months of when they're heard. Right. And there, there are different reasons for all these. For example, the juvenile cases, cases involving um, custody, things of that nature. The polar star, the north star for juvenile cases involves the best interests of the child, which um, you know, in a contract dispute, the timing may be important. But imagine if you're trying to decide whether one parent has sole physical and legal custody and one parent doesn't have visitation. So there's that. Um, some cases do get uh, uh, placed uh, higher up in the in the docket. Um, and wonder that some judges could get through in 45 minutes is taking another judge five hours. That's a, that's not the right pace. So mm-hmm. just striking the balance and knowing which issues really need special attention and which issues are already governed by precedent and we can just get on with it. Yeah, I believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I don't really mind the ponderous judges. I prefer it as opposed to the, um, 
the opposite of that, I guess I'll say. Um, and I, you know, I track, I travel a fair amount across North Carolina. I've been to a lot of different counties and to see how we do, how we handle court per jurisdiction, there are cultural differences in Charlotte where I'm primarily based. We have the benefit of, uh, trial court administrator's office. We've got calendaring protocols that were actually in, in used nationwide as examples for things like drug court. And we have a family court and we have domestic violence court. And so a lot of our time of handling things, especially in Superior Court, uh, where you're doing pleas, everything has already been worked out, negotiated. It's a matter of making sure the client understands the terms and conditions of the plea, again, subject to the discretion of court, uh, are, are pretty much already set. Uh, let me ask you a question. How, I, the responsibility you bear as a Superior Court judge um, and, and, and Court of Appeals you, you, as a lawyer, I have to pace myself. Um, how do you, how do you pace yourself? Um, well, pacing is, um, you know, pacing is really important for the fairness of the process to make sure that a judge isn't making a decision without thinking through all the factual and legal issues that must be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, also, pacing affects other people in the courtroom, like the jurors, for example. Mm. Um, and being able to know, and, and it really just comes from experience. I don't think there's any way you can learn this without just having the experience. Being able to know which issues are black letter law can be decided on the spot, which issues are going to take more time. Um, if you have jurors, we don't want to stop the trial just sitting there in the jury box or be sent back to the jury room for more, more minutes in the day than they are in the courtroom. So it's a matter of logistics and a matter of prioritizing the legal issues. Right. And the, again, for law students, when there is a legal issue, sometimes we address those legal issues, a dispute between the litigants. We did, we address them in pretrial motions. We outside the, pre, you know, outside, there's no juror in the box. It's just the court, court reporter and courtroom staff um, and witnesses. There are other times though, and this, we see this, especially in criminal cases where the judge says, hey, I'm going to, I've seen your pretrial motion. I'm going to wait to rule on that, um, and um, which I get. It is a bit frustrating though, because then there is this balance between wanting to be fully heard, and we got a jury sitting back in what may be a very boring. I've never seen a really comfortable juror room, um, <laughs> maybe even one or two. Um, but there's a balance between not wanting to wear them out. What about work-life balance issues for you as a judge? What do you do? Well, you may not be surprised to hear that balancing work and personal life is a lot easier for a judge than for a lawyer. The judges are in charge of the daily court schedule. We don't have clients calling after hours. Um, we don't, I don't think, carry the same burden that lawyers do of 
you know, if I just work on this issue all night, maybe I can make the facts and the law beneficial to my client. Mm -hmm. There's not, there's not the duty of moving a mountain. And so it's, it's easier to have the balance judges, trial judges have to be available at all hours for law enforcement officers, for applications, for search warrants, but they come to our houses. You know, we don't have to get up and go anywhere. I didn't realize that. So they, they come to your house to get a warrant. They do. I mean, they do. And, and, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of, of police operations happen late at night or it, or if they happened even at five, at 5 PM, it might take until 11 PM to have the application prepared correctly. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, law enforcement officers come to the, come to the judges houses and um, the judge has a responsibility to say, well, just because I got up at 2 a.m. and just because you're here doesn't mean I'm going to sign this warrant <laughs> unless <laughs> it meets the criteria. So we have to do that. Right. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge for, for judges in terms of work-life balance is what you've probably heard of referred to as compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. We see awful awful cases and um there's no amount of no jury verdict no criminal sentence is going to make whole someone who's lost a loved one or a child who's been abused and for me physical exercise has really been the best way to kind of turn that off. Um, when I was a Superior Court judge and 10 years younger than I am now, I ran a lot. Um, I had picked up that discipline in law school and thought, you know, if I flunk out of law school, at least I'll have strong legs. So I ran a lot. Now I walk and jog very, very slowly. Um, I like to play um, a game called pickleball. It's like the poor man's or the old man's tennis. Um, because it's a great way to hang out with friends and get great belly laughs without mm -hmm. sitting and drinking. So all of those physical things for me are th the best way to keep that balance. When my children were young, the most difficult thing was being out of town and not seeing them during the week. And there's no way I could have done it without my husband, just no way. Um, but I did try to make plans for weekends for us to do things that would take us away from screens, away from phones. And, um, you know, but I again, couldn't have done it without so many other people's help. Sure. And it just goes to show law students that, um, it doesn't matter how smart you are and whether you're on law review, everyone's always afraid they're going to fail out of, uh, law school. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's normal. That's normal. Uh, well, Your Honor, um, this may be a good time to put a pin in it. If I could impose upon you, I'd like to do an, another segment of Law Talk with you. And so I'm going to um, sign off right now and I'd ask everyone to uh, listen to uh, part two of Law Talk uh, with uh, Judge Inman. 
Thank you so much for having me. Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions on your time. Ready to discuss your matter now? Call 704-342-HELP for your free and totally confidential consultation. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented on this podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions. Thanks for listening.